Pocketbook. Noun. One. A woman's handbag. Two. A paperback or other small cheap edition of a book. Hi everyone and welcome to The Pocketbook, the podcast where you get cheap literary information that you could fit into your pocket or your handbag or just wherever. So I just wanted to do a little quick intro for this first episode to let you know where we come from and why this podcast even exists. And the short answer is that I had a conversation with a friend who said, oh my God, I feel like I should read the Bible. I was like, okay, you're a massive atheist. Uh, Why? And she said, well, I'm taking English literature classes and I really want to know all the jokes and I don't get them. And so I'm, I'm really frustrated because I feel like I should have all of this information that I don't have. And I want to read the book, but it's super intimidating. And oh my God, it's so incredibly long. And I said, well, actually, um, you don't have to do that. I could just tell you stories. I mean, I went to church when I was a kid. I went to Catholic school. I, it's probably fine. I could, I could make it up. Um, and so that's where the idea for this podcast came from was to make some of those bigger literary things a little bit more manageable and to, uh, the cheap down market edition that you could put in your pocket. So before we jump in, I want to do a quick disclaimer, um, a little bit about what this podcast is and what it is not. So this is a down market version where I tell you the basics about what happens in the Bible. We'll be pointing out cultural markers as we go, things that you might have heard about, you might have heard you know, famous people say, or you might have heard it in books or seen it on TV or whatever, right? And some of the big tropes that, that come out of biblical texts. What this is not is a, a biblical scholarship project. I am not a biblical scholar. I had the opportunity to do my master's degree in that and chose not to, and I do something else now. And this is not a religious podcast per se. Um, I don't feel the need to sort of talk about my own religious leanings, particularly. Um, I think it's enough to know that I have a pretty loosey-goosey sort of background when it comes to churches and organized religion and and those kinds of things, and that this is not intended to be um, partisan to one faith or another. This just happens to be the first literary project that we're tackling. So it's not a, yeah, don't, don't at me about your religious beliefs. If I say things about Jesus that you don't like, please, please don't talk to me. Um, This is mostly to be an interpretation of the story and to tell you a little bit about what goes on. It's supposed to be a little bit funny. So, you know, I am going to poke fun at Jesus and all the other folks that show up. And so if you don't like that, please stop now. Um, You know, this is if you don't appreciate Bible and humor being in the same concept, then this isn't the podcast for you. And, um, you know, go on and and check out something else. But if you do like humor, if you do want to know a little bit more about the Bible and feel like you can stick that knowledge in your back pocket, then strap in because we are starting with the first to third, potentially fourth chapters of Genesis this episode. So I, oh, let me tell you about creation stories before we leap in. I think this is one of many creation stories that exist in the universe. And if you look at other faiths, other cultures, other traditions, there's this wonderful thread of commonality that runs through all of them and themes like water and you know, multiple days to make the thing and the making of humans and animals and plants and all those different kinds of things. And I think it's so fascinating and says a lot about 
a culture or a group of people the way that they choose to describe the world. And I think it's really, really neat. So in this one, in the beginning, we start the chapter of Genesis with uh, void, formless, nothing. And my favorite phrase is that the spirit of God moved over the waters I'm just like, oh, cool. Because water, I think that's that's one of those commonalities, right? I mean, if there's nothing but void and everything is nothingness, it's covered in water. And I think it's really neat that actually a lot of indigenous creation stories that I'm familiar with also start with there was nothing but water. You know, the world was brought up on the back of a diver, you know, whether it's a duck or an otter or whoever goes down to to get the earth. Um and so this is this is the same thing where we start with nothing but water. And so we're going to talk about water a lot later. It's going to it's going to come up, especially once we get to the New Testament. And I wanted to put a little plug in about why we're starting with the Old Testament. I did think most of the people that asked me to talk about this said that they were really interested in the New Testament. Um, I'm of the opinion that the Bible in its entirety is a complete trip and is something that really should be experienced. And I thought, well, maybe I could start with particular stories. Maybe I could just pull out the popular ones, but it just doesn't make sense. And I, ugh, of the limited Bible study that I have done, I mean, if you haven't at least heard about or understand the context of the Old Testament, leaping right into the New Testament just doesn't make any sense. And there are so many jokes and... I say, I say jokes. There's not very many jokes in the Bible. Um, but there's a lot of references and things that a lot of later writers make reference to the Old Testament. So if we haven't talked about that, then we'll sort of jump into the New Testament, especially the book of John, and just be like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about, John. I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't I didn't study that part. So that's why we're starting back here. And I should say for anybody that wants to like ugh, God forbid, if you've made it this far and you still want to critique my scholarship then I am using the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, that's the translation that I'm using um, as my base text. And for anyone who doesn't know, there are about 30 bajillion different translations of the Bible. This is not its original language. I don't speak Biblical Greek and I don't speak Latin either. So we are not going back to the OG Bible. That's not what we're doing here. Um, this is a pretty common Bible for scholars. When I was thinking of going into my uh, master's in church history, I, this was the translation that most of the articles that I read were using. So that's why we're using it. Okay, so let's jump into the good stuff. Uh, the first thing we get into is the multiple days. And I have to say, when we're starting with Genesis chapter one, we really are starting with the first of two creation stories that's in the Bible. Um, and most of what is sort of trotted out in pop culture is actually a combination of these two stories. And they were both written by two very different groups of people. I don't remember what they're called. If you want to go take a religion course, they will tell you. Um, but there's two different groups of people. One who believed that God was quite distant and he sort of like created the world and then let mankind do its thing or humankind do its thing. And then another group that really had God being very up close and personal. You know, he created Adam and Eve and then he was like in the garden, like walking around and doing his thing. So notice some differences. But if we're going to jump into the first day, if there's nothing but darkness and water, the first thing God does is he divides the darkness and the light and he turns them into day and night. And that's it. That's the first day. After that, you got to take a breather. The next, the second day is so cool. The second day, God divides the water. He puts a dome in place to divide the water. And there's water above the dome and water below the dome. And he called 
the dome sky. And I just think it's so cool that this early conception of the world was like, okay, so there's water that falls out of the sky and there's water on the earth. So maybe it's like the sky is this big umbrella and there's water above us as well. And maybe sometimes there's just holes in it and then it rains. And I was like, what a great idea. Like, oh man, early people were just so fascinating and came up with a bunch of really fabulous ideas. So that's day two. That's a lot of work to raise up that dome of sky to separate the water from the water. That's day two. And then on day three, hooray, dry ground. God causes the water that's under the dome to kind of come together and leave dry spots. And now we have dry ground. Oh, and then they get names. They get called land and sea. The dry stuff and the wet stuff, obviously, not the other way around. God knew what was up. And this is a really busy day. So unlike the other days where we just, you know, made day and night, made some sky. Now that we've made ourselves some dry ground, we're going to plant some stuff in the ground. And we get vegetation. And I love the... I mean, I'm a language nerd and I love the repetitive nature of the language in these verses. And it's it's really meant, you can really see in these stories that it's meant to be um, told around the fire, right? This is this part of the Bible comes from the oral tradition where you're telling stories to a bunch of people. And there's these really cool things that you can put in place so that you don't have to remember as much and it kind of reduces your memory load. And one of the things that shows up in the first part of Genesis is it was evening, it was morning the first day. It was evening, it was morning the second day. The other thing that happens after after every time God does something is, and God saw that it was good. I'm like, oh, that's so nice. The world just started out so, no, so lovely. Don't worry, it goes downhill. But uh, it started off as good. And I think that's really, really cool. So in this case, when we're planting things into the ground, what happens is God makes, and it says any plant that with seed or fruit, God made it. And then he said, then it says he caused it to grow in the ground. Every plant that has a seed or a fruit. I'm like, oh, I think it's so cool that people are repeating those same pieces. And if you if you do go look at the text on your own, you can see that there's lots of different repeated phrases that are meant to help the memory of someone who's telling this story by memory, which is so cool. And so that is day three, friends. We have the ground and we have uh, vegetation. And I think that was it was meant to cover trees and flowers and grass. And if it's got a seed or it's got a fruit, God made it on day three. Woo. So day four, uh, this is weird thing number one. So like if inconsistencies bother you, like get prepared, my friend, because woo, there are some in here. Uh, this is one of my favorites. On day four, uh, God makes a light to separate the day and the night. And so he makes the daylight is the sun and the other lesser light is the moon. And then he makes the stars. And I just think it's really funny that it's day four before we get sunlight and we've already had four days. And the way we measure a day is by the position of the sun. I, ugh, let me tell you, when I was in grade 11 religion class, this annoyed the crap out of me, but whatever. It's a, it's a fun fact that we get... Um, we get light and we get plants before we even get sunlight to feed the plants. So that's a thing. So now we get, we give the plants a couple of days to take a break. And now we have day five where we get some animals. And I like that the early people thought that we should be dividing up which kinds of animals were created on which day. So on day five, we get birds 
and fish. So we have air and water. I think maybe God was giving the land a break because they didn't, you know, we planted all of these plants on day three, but then we didn't give them a sun until day four. So it wouldn't make sense, really, logically speaking, if you were to put animals there to eat all the grass. I don't think that would have gone very great. But regardless, whatever the divine plan happened to be, if you believe in a divine plan, we get birds and fish first. And then on day six, we get animals and people. And we get all the beasts of the field. And my favorite is God says, I'm going to make man in my image, which I always think is so cool. Because really, if you want to talk to, I don't know. See, I said it wasn't going to be a religious podcast. I lied. It's going to be a me podcast. And you just, you're, I mean, you're here now, so you just get what you get. But think about the infinite variety of humans and think that, you know, all humankind is created in God's image and what a cool thing God must be if he or she or they are up there. Anyway, um, the other command that you might have heard pop up into pop culture is be fruitful and multiply. And God says this to humans and he also says it to all the beasts And this is one of those things where if you ever wondered why there are some Christian sects that are really against sex, say that 10 times fast, um, this is one of the reasons why sex is thought to be for procreation and not recreation is because God was like, well, you have to be fruitful and multiply. Babies, babies for everyone. You get babies, you get babies, you get babies. Look under your chair. You've all got a baby. So that's kind of where that, that comes from. And in this first creation story, God actually makes man and woman at the same time. And so, bam, we make people, we're good to go. Day seven, it's time for some chillaxing. And the end of this story just says, those are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Bam, done. So that's it. I mean, and if you're, if you're sitting there thinking, whoa, but like, what about the rib and the Eve and the, all that other good stuff? Don't worry, we're getting to it. That all happens in... The next account of creation. So we kind of skip ahead. Don't worry. We don't start from day one again. But this time, the same day that God makes, makes the earth and the heavens, when there was no plant and no anything else because he hadn't made it rain. I feel like this one has a lot more logical consistency. It's, you know, the writer saying, well, of course there were no plants because obviously there hadn't been rain and no sun. Um, this is where God starts making streams. And this one, you know, he causes all of these streams to rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground, which I think is super, oh, a very poetic. And like I say, I'm a language nerd. And then when there's still some dust on the ground, God makes man. And this is where, if you've heard about the breath of life, God breathing into the dead clay and making it alive, this is where this happens. And then he plants a garden. And it's in this account of creation that we get the quote unquote garden of Eden. Um, And I always think it's really interesting, the Garden of Eden in the East. And so if you ever read any Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, where all of the good things are in the extreme East of the world, you know, when Reba Cheap wants to sail to the far East of the world where the sun rises, I'm guessing that's where that comes from, is that Eden is supposed to be in the East. So there you go. There's your literary reference for episode one. And I mean, if you don't already know, Lewis and Tolkien were bros and shared a lot of fun ideas and I'm sure there's a Tolkien and Lewis podcast out there if you want to go know more about them they're fabulous anyway so then we've got the garden and now we get every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food and right smack in the middle of the garden there's a tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <sighs> and this is also the part where they talk about some rivers and stuff in here. I don't know, not super important. That's the nice thing about getting the pocketbook edition is we get to skip over all the so-and-so begat so-and-so and all these rivers were around. I'm sure biblical scholars everywhere are screaming, but that's okay. They're going to have to scream. And then we get to verse 15 and God pulls the best thing ever. He says to the man who doesn't really have a name yet, he says, okay, so you see that tree in the middle of the garden, the one that has the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat anything else in the garden, but this one, don't even look at it. Don't smell it. Don't touch it. Because if you do and you eat it, you'll die. Kind of dire stuff. You know, I don't know if somebody told me. Well, I feel like humans are easily divided into two categories. Category one is people like me who, if you say, if you touch that, you'll die. I'll be like, okay, sweet. I'm never touching it again. I am the world's biggest fraidy cat. And then there's the other category of people that as soon as you say, don't touch it, you'll die. They say, really? Like, die, die? How dead will I really be? And then they touch it and then they eat it. So leaving man to have some time to think about the situation, the Lord looks down and says, oh, look, I made two of everything else, but I only made one of this guy. Aw, I don't want him to be lonely. And so then he says, I'm going to find him a partner. Well, actually, I will make him a partner. So he brings up some dirt and now he makes the animals. So again, we do go back a little bit. We get a, a different account of how the animals were made. God takes up the dust and he makes every animal of the field, every bird of the air, and he brings them to the man and says, look, I made you a thing. Please name it. And then he does. And the man names all the cattle and the birds and everything. And then none of them were a helper or a partner, which I think is really, I don't know. I just picture, oh, this is incredibly blasphemous, but it's so cute. I just picture God bringing the man all of these things and going, look, I made you a lemur. And the man's like, oh, okay, we're going to call that a lemur. Nice, cool. And God's like, you don't, you don't want to keep it with you forever? And then, you know, I made you a puppy. And the man's like, look, it's a dog. And God's like, but, but you don't want to, oh, you don't want to keep it with you? Oh, no. So finally, after every animal of the field and every bird of the air has been created, and I mean, come on, Adam, you didn't take the chance to have like a tiger as your life's companion? I, mm, you missed out. Poor life choice there. But we do luck out because God says, you know what? Fine then, I'm putting you to sleep. And then he takes one of the ribs and just closed up its place with flesh. So don't worry. It's okay. The man wasn't missing all of his things. It's totally fine. Uh, so he takes the rib. God does, not the man. That would be weird. Here, look, it's one of my own ribs. Ooh. And he makes the rib into a woman and brings her to the man. And finally, the man is like, this one, this is the one that I want to have forever. And God must have been like, oh my God, thank Frick Frack, finally. And this is one of those things where... You'll find, I, I say you'll find this, I, and certainly in the myths and legends and creation things that I have read, this is very common where you're trying to explain natural phenomena. And I don't know, this one feels like the beginning of the patriarchy. The reason given is this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. It's because 
God did it. So now we keep doing it. I don't know. It's interesting and heteronormative. And there you go. That's what's in there. I'm just, I'm just giving you the facts. And my favorite one, the last verse of the second chapter is, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Which is kind of cool because I don't think anybody should be ashamed of their bodies. Because you got them and you can't get rid of them unless you do drastic things. But don't do that. Don't, don't get rid of your bodies. Please keep them. And now we get to the good stuff. I'm sure every one of you has heard a version of this story. Uh, in some texts, it's called the fall. In this text, it's called the first sin and its punishment. And oh my Lord, I am sure that tracts and tracts, reams and reams of paper have been written about what sin is and what it isn't. And wow, really smart people have talked about that and they're not me. And so if you want to know about sin and all that stuff, you can go and look it up. But if you're curious as to the concept of quote-unquote original sin, this is the story that it comes from. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, as will happen many times throughout the course of this text, there's a new character, ta-da! And it just says the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord has made. So we just, here comes this serpent. And you know how there's sort of this idea that the serpent was the devil? That's not in the text. That's something that somebody else has added on. Um, this is just a snake. And the snake comes up and says, hey, lady, how's it going? And, you know, the lady is like, I don't know. Notice that at this point, the man and his wife don't have names. So the man and the woman are just the man and the woman because there's only two. So you don't have to name them because there's only one of each. It's fine. So the snake rocks up and says, oh, my God, did God tell you not to eat that tree or eat from that tree? Please don't eat the tree. Blah. Tree bark. And the woman said, oh, absolutely. We can eat the, the fruit of any of the other trees in the garden, just not that one, or we're going to die. And the snake says the same thing that some humans still say to themselves. Die? Like, die, die? How, like, how much death, though? And he says, you know, really what the thing is, is God doesn't, he just told you that to freak you out. You know, you're not going to really die. Like, that's so, ooh, it's dramatic and very final. What's going to happen is... If you eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the longest title of any tree ever, I am sure, what's going to happen is you're really going to know the difference between good and evil, just like God. And God is a jerk, and he doesn't want you to know what he knows. And the woman is like, oh my God, literally, he's a jerk. Wow, that, woof. This snake knows what's up. And then she looks at the tree and goes, Mmm, that looks tasty. Or as it says in the original text, she saw that the tree was good for food. And that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise. So she's like, all right, looks nice, smells nice, probably is going to make me nice, I better eat it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So I think it's really interesting that sort of it's kind of put about in pop culture that, you know, Eve was there, it was just Eve and the serpent, and they were hanging out, conspiring, and then they brought Adam into it, and it was all Eve's fault. But honestly, the way that this sounds to me is, you know, she ate it and also gave some to her husband, who was with her. So, like, they were both literally, like, he was right there hearing this whole conversation. Like, dude, you, you knew what was, you knew what was going down. Anyway... So they both eat the fruit, and then their eyes were opened, which makes me picture them wandering around blind for the first little bit. I mean, I know it's metaphorical, but it's still funny to picture the first man and woman wandering around without their eyes open like little baby kittens. Ooh. 
they don't even have their eyes open. But now they do, and everything is terrible. Because now they see that they're naked, and they're ashamed. So they sew together some fig leaves and make themselves loincloths. Notice that the woman does not get a bra. Just would like to point that out. Boobs are boobs, and they're fine. It's just your, it's just your under bits that you have to cover up, apparently. And this is where, remember that difference that I talked about earlier with the first creation story is that um, this in this one, God is really hands-on. He is like, his presence is really close to mankind as opposed to the first account where God was just sort of like made the world and peaced out. And he blessed the seventh day and was like, I'm gonna go chillax in my lazy boy. You guys can just do your thing. In this one, God comes down and walks in the garden. And I love the sensory description, right? Like they can hear the sound of God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. I'm like, ooh, it's dusk. Romantic. But the man and his wife have figured out that they're naked and they hide themselves from God. And God called to the man and said, yo, where are you at? And the man said, uh, I heard you walking in the garden. And because I was naked, I thought I should hide. And God was like, wait, wait, hold up. Who told you you were naked? And then, you know, in the same breath, he doesn't even give an opportunity to answer the question. He's just like, oh, did you eat that tree that I told you not to eat? And in classic human fashion, (laughs) the man says, "Uh, actually, that woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. And so I ate it because like, she's my companion and the partner of my life. So obviously I ate the fruit. And God is like, oh my God. And then he turns to the woman and said, what'd you do? And the woman in classic human fashion said, oh, that serpent that you made, he told me to do it. So I did it. I'm like, oh my God, humans passing the buck since the beginning of time. Oh, so-and-so made me do it. And then of course, this is something that's going to come up in the Old Testament. And I will tell you guys straight up, like, I don't know how to reconcile some of these things. And like I say, I'm just giving you the facts so that you know what's up. But the punishments that are doled out in the Old Testament sometimes seem a little on the harsh side. So does God say anything to Adam or, you know, the man who doesn't really have a name yet? Nope. He jumps right in on the serpent and said, oh, wow, you did a bad thing. And because you did, here's your punishment. Number one, you are going to go about on your belly and eat some dust. And I was like, okay, so... (laughs) On the one hand, you know, I'm sorry for the serpent that they have to crawl around on their tummy. But also, my favorite thing is to imagine how serpents walked before they got told this. Or how serpents traveled, I guess. Like, did they have thousands and thousands of tiny little legs? Did they hop around like a pogo stick? Did they just float? I don't know. It's, oh, the possibilities are endless. So if you have any ideas about how you think snakes walked before they got told to go on their tummies, please let me know. And of course, the last part of the punishment ties into both the serpent and the woman. And God said, that's it. You guys, you know, were in cahoots against me. So now you got to deal with your problems and you're going to be enemies for the rest of ever. And all of your descendants are going to hate each other. Snake's going to bite the ladies on the heel and the ladies' descendants are going to throw rocks at the snake. And it's going to be sad and bad and mean. Oh, and then we get to the woman's punishment. And I think... I don't know. I like to think that this is something in an ancient text that really speaks to just how rough menstruation is and how many women out there have a huge trouble with this because, I mean, it's it's bad enough, like childbearing and menstruation and all of those kinds of things and the patriarchy 
are so prevalent and so heavy for women to carry that I, I really like the idea that someone thought up the idea of like, wow, this is really hard for ladies. Like they must have done some pretty dire shit to get cursed with this. Like we're in trouble. And so that's the punishment that God doles out to the woman for eating of the tree is that she will have increased pain in childbirth. Um, It's going to be really hard to have babies and you're going to really desire your husband and he's going to rule over you. So there you go. Childbirth and the patriarchy. That's what's up. And for the man, he just says, you know, you messed up and I'm kicking you out of my fancy garden. So back west you go, my bro. And it's going to be really hard for you to get any food. So it just, I don't know. I sort of, and, and this is sort of where we get the idea of the man and the woman being cast out into the desert. Because, you know, the punishment, you know, it's in all in verse. And it talks about how, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you will bring forth fruit and the, and the ground is going to be hard and you'll have to work really hard to get it to give up fruit and plants for you. And life's going to be super rough. And uh, you did this to yourself because you did the thing that I told you not to do, which kind of sounds a bit like that time, you know, maybe you guys had this when you were little, when your parents would like set traps for you, you know, like one time my ballet slippers got left on the fireplace and my mom standing in the living room and I am sitting in the kitchen and she says to me, did you put your ballet slippers away? And I went, yep, I sure did. Meanwhile, of course, my mother is standing there looking at the ballet slippers and going, no, you didn't. And then she called me by my middle name and gave me one more chance and said, are you lying to me? And I said, no, mommy, no, I am not lying. And then it was like, busted, because of course I was lying, right? I feel like this is kind of the same thing, right? Like God puts the man and the woman in there and says, don't do the thing. And then he watches them and he comes and says, did you do the thing? And the man said, I didn't do the thing. The woman did the thing. And the woman says, I didn't do the thing. The snake did the thing. And then they all get in trouble because that's how parenting works. Anyway, so now they finally get names. The woman gets named Eve because she's the mother of all the living things. And then the Lord makes them some clothes as kind of like a, you know, consolation prize, I guess, and sends them out. And he sets an angel to guard the way uh, towards the tree of life. And the angel's got a flaming sword. If any of you have read or seen Good Omens, that's the flaming sword that Aziraphale gives away. So now you know where that comes from. Angels, flaming swords. Woof. It's a trip. And so... That is the end of Genesis chapter three. So next episode, we're probably going to jump into what happens after humanity gets cast out into the wilderness. And so that's going to cover Cain and Abel, which is the first murder for all you murder podcast lovers out there. This is apparently, according to this text, the first murder ever. So the OG murder Uh, and the covenant with Noah, which has some weird naked grandpa stuff. You didn't think there was that in there, did you? No, but there is. And we're probably going to cover the Tower of Babel because it is just in the middle there out of nowhere. So there you go. That's what's going down next episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. Um, You know, let me know if there's other things that you'd like to hear or if there's more details you want out of these stories or less details. Just uh, keep me posted. So thanks very much for tuning in, guys, and hope to see you next episode.